What's up, everybody? My name is Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Our point leader, Bobby Harrington, had the privilege of interviewing Doug Paul on one of our collective shows. Doug heads up an organization called Catapult, which exists to help leaders build successful, scalable ministries. Bobby and Doug talk back and forth about Doug's new book, which is called Kingdom Innovation. They talk about discipling non-believers. And after the break, they go into detail about how to effectively use the Discovery Bible Study, or some people call it DBS. And if you're a small group leader, you're going to want to stick around after the break to hear that so that you can get help on how to effectively use that as a tool for making disciples. So this show ran inside of our discipleship.org collective. You can go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for free and catch more shows like this live. All right, guys, let's jump into the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm Bobby Harrington, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. I'm really uh, grateful to have my uh, new friend, uh, Doug Paul, with me. I'm really excited to talk about his book because uh, we really think that uh, his book is a keeper and uh, that it's really going to help the disciple-making conversation. Just a little bit of background about our time together. If you're joining us live, I want to encourage you inside the collective to look at the chat box. Um, Our own Matt Dabbs will be looking at the questions you put in there and uh, he'll be getting them to us. So we want to encourage you to do that. Um, If you're watching this later, or if you're listening to the podcast, we just want to encourage you to um, actually check out the book is probably going to be the best way. And I'm going to ask Doug to also share some other ways that people can follow up with him. So Doug, welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And I'd like to begin by just getting you to give people a one minute summary of who you are and uh, your ministry to this point in your life. In one minute or less. All right. Um, Well, I live in Richmond, Virginia, three kids, wife, Great Dane. um, And uh, I'm currently at a a local church here in the uh, sort of the city center in in a neighborhood. And everything that we do is focused on two square miles of real estate. It's the sixth highest concentration of poverty in the United States. Really? yeah, so all the stuff that you associate with poverty um, and the effects of that, that is our ministry context. Um, so I came here six and a half years ago and did five years full-time work and then scaled back to a day a week and uh, continued to be a pastor there, an elder there, but do a lot of work uh, around North America in training pastors around innovation, um, disciple-making movements, stuff like that. So that's where... In 60 seconds or less, that's a, that's a that's, thumbnail. That's yeah. pretty good. I just want to know, you have three kids. Do you have a dog or a cat? It's a dog. His name's Oliver. Oliver. He, yeah, he's a Great Dane. He's 185 pounds. <laughs> wow, that's a big one. Yeah, my youngest can still ride him like a horse. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, um, you've written, a, uh, I think, a really important book. And I'm going to get you to introduce it. We, we have a slide you're going to show to us. But before you do that, just a little bit of context for those who are joining us. Um, Doug's book is going to focus on innovation. We call it in kingdom innovation uh, in the church, how we can um, not only prepare for the future, but thrive in the future. 
and he cares very much about disciple making, which is why he's here with us. So we're really grateful about that. Um, in fact, let me just begin by asking you, Doug, if you'd describe why you care about disciple making. Yeah, I think, I mean, the starting point is, it was the invitation to be a disciple uh, when I was in my early 20s, when I became a Christian, that is why I became a Christian. Um, so for me, I became a Christian, not so much with where was I going to go when I died, um, though that was, we, we talk about it, it's like, that's the cherry on top of the Sunday that we get to be with Jesus in this new world that he's recreating forever. But I had so destroyed my life um, and it was just in ruins and the invitation that, that God wanted to put back the broken pieces of my life and actually um, help me figure out what that Ephesians 2.10 calling in my life was and then be a conduit for others to do that um, spoke to like the deepest parts of me. And so not long after I became a Christian, I read uh, Robert Coleman's classic Master Plan of Evangelism. Yes. And so that set my, I didn't immediately jump into ministry. Uh, I was in the financial sector at the time. And, but that, that set a trajectory, I think, for ministry, but for my life. And so I have, I'm like a dog with a bone when it comes to some of those things. So that's, that, that really is what, it's, it's deeply personal. Like that is why I'm so committed to that. So uh, just for everybody who's either watching or listening, Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, um, is the gold standard on how Jesus made disciples. Like when you say, give me a description of Jesus' method of disciple making, uh, I was, my, my short answer is intentional relational transformation. My longer answer is Robert Coleman's 100-page book <laughs> you know, where, where he just lays out uh, you know, how Jesus made disciples. Um, and we're really privileged every year at our National Disciple Making Forum. Uh, Robert Coleman, who's now 93, closes it for us with an invitation. And uh, when he speaks, it's like God himself is uh, thundering and, and uh, the way he prays. So I, I just like setting the context for everybody. Now, uh, this book is actually, um, here, here's what I want to communicate. I want to communicate that God's blessed Doug with some great insights. And he's helping some pretty... Um, significant organizations like that's what he does so from uh, dave ferguson talking about the new thing network uh that uh, is based out of chicago to um harry brown told me last week harry brown leads new generations of disciple making movement of uh you know they're they're planting so many churches over a million people just phenomenal things and uh, they've asked doug to help them think through how to get better. So what a great thing that, that you're doing this and that God's gifted you and that you care about it. So Doug, can you begin by showing the chart we talked about and explaining the basics of your book? Yeah, so the, the book itself is, I, I, I was in, I don't remember the first time I read a Malcolm Gladwell book. Yeah. Um, but I just loved it. I loved how 
he was he was like is this alchemy of like stories and research and practical insights but with like one overarching narrative and so what, what i tried to do in the book was to was to kind of do that idea with christian leaders i think you did um, it well thank you thank you I, I kept thinking this is like Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, yeah that is i mean like i've yeah I'm heavily influenced by gladwell adam grant um the heath brothers like the way that i, I just love the way that they think and like it's just a mashup of sometimes of like really odd things that somehow magically fit together um and so i wanted to write a book that had that feel to it but still was explaining the process that we've developed at catapult for how we help leaders and organizations when it comes to innovation um and so this is just going to share my screen real quickly this is the process that we use for the five stages of kingdom innovation and you can see like they're they're each of them has a master tool. I won't, I'm not gonna double click on each of the master tools, um, but use these as a way of talking through how we walk alongside of organizations or, or leaders. Um, that, that first phase is around identification and we call that the what's your why tool. Um, because a lot of times what we do is we are, we, we think we're trying to solve for one problem, but actually we're trying to solve something different. And so, you know, I work a lot with leaders who are who are in that discipleship space. And so one of the questions they'll oftentimes ask is like, um, how do we fix our small groups? And it's like we can we can we can do that. But like, is that really the problem you're trying to solve? Like we want to help them identify, like, well, why did you first start small groups? What do you want small groups to deliver? Is small groups the thing? that you that's actually going to solve the big problem so like helping them identify their why which is identifying what's the innovation you need um and i want to say maybe maybe this is an exaggeration but eight times out of ten leaders are solving for the wrong problem mm. um, so we, we're, we're trying to drive them down to, to ask what what um one writer called a more beautiful question mm. around identifying the innovation they really need Phase two um, is probably one that more leaders are familiar with, which is around ideation. Like, how do we, how do we think through new ideas, new practices? Um, how do we, how would we take universal principles that we find in the Bible, but that could have infinite practices depending on the context that we find ourselves in, um, and put together something very, very simple um, that we can take into phase three, which is experimentation. Um, and I find, Bobby, this is the most skipped phase. Um, we are, we, I, I can go down the rabbit hole of like how we're used to programmatic church, but usually it's, I'm gonna import something from somewhere else and I'm gonna expect, like I know the results are gonna work and in six months, boom, it's gonna be yeah. there. Yeah. But when you're developing something new, it usually doesn't work the first time. Uh, and so you've got to keep at it. You've got to iterate on it. You've got to adapt. You've got to you got to really make changes and adjustments as you go in that experimentation thing until it actually does the thing you want it to do. Does it actually solve the problem that you've identified in phase one? Um, and if it does, then we can move into phase four, which is around mobilization. That's where we're, we we unwind it a little. And we ask this question: Why did it work? Mm. And what would it look like? to codify the process and to train as many people as we can into to getting to where we, we end up in that fifth phase, which is around multiplication. How do we multiply 
that innovation to as many people as possible so that it has it, it kind of that innovation is making um i think what robert clinton calls is like its ultimate contribution mm. what, what does it look like for that to happen so you know that's two and a half minutes or less but there, there's obviously a lot we could dig into for that but that is that's the process that we walk organizations and leaders through with around innovation no that's good and so i, I want everybody to know that that's what um Doug walks you through in the book with killer stories from Thomas Edison to uh, Bill W with the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous to uh, um, to just all these stories uh, helping to make things clear. One of the, the the funny stories that he starts with is the manure problem that they were having in London at the end of the 1800s. Yeah. The Great Manure Crisis of 1894. <laughs> <laughs> I read that and I thought, what? But then when you map it out, in the city of London, they had 50,000 horses pulling carriages and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, they produced, what'd you say, 30 pounds of manure a day. Each that horse. Would, that, that, would, that would create a lot of manure and a big problem for people. So uh, it was, anyway, it was just a, it's just a great read, so. Um, can I get you to give an example of each of those phases? Like, I know you've got to be careful because you work with organizations and there's probably some degree of anonymity that you want to protect for them. But uh, could you walk us through a sample story, even if it's a nameless one? One, one organization or leader through, yeah. through five? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, let me share my screen again. It'll just make it easier uh, to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I'll just use a, a church that we've worked with recently, uh, that is, you know, we've got, we, we run this process through what we call a disciple making lab, which helps leaders, um, of churches create a disciple making model that is built for deep transformation and high reproduction. Um, by the way, I love those two descriptors, deep uh, transformation and then reproduction that's yeah. good so I, I mean i already already mentioned this as an example but usually in phase one people are engaging that process because they're like our small groups aren't working so you know statistically speaking um i mean there are, there are all kinds of statistics about this but it's it, you're you're doing great if you are getting 60 percent of people who are adult attenders into a small group the average church is only getting 37% in. Um, the, the best small group leaders tend to only be able to multiply their group three times because at some point they're like, you keep telling me to split this thing. Uh, and we're like, no, 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 it's not split, it's multiply, we're multiplying it. Um, but at some point- You know what you're talking about. <laughs> they're like, we, we don't want, you keep, like I become best friends with these people and then you rip us apart and you tell me to go ahead, do it again. And in three years, it's going to be the same song and dance. Um, and so they're like, they're coming to us. They're like, small groups aren't working. Uh, and then we, we unwind that and we're like, all right, let's, let's actually identify like, is like, why did small groups start? And what you see more, more over than not, like small groups started because they were meant to serve as relational flypaper. People were coming into the worship service, and if they didn't connect to relationships, they would leave within 18 months. I mean, this has been true in the late 80s, 90s, 2000s. 
Um, but then we started to put all this other stuff on the small groups. So if we're identifying what do small groups do, what are they designed to do? It's to, to actually connect people to relationships. They do a great job of that. The challenge, of course, is when we're like, well, we also want them to be missional. We also want them. We also want them. We also want them. And so that first phase of this church is just helping them identify what does it look like for you to um, understand what you really want to solve here. And for them, they finally got to a point was our people are spiritually stuck. They're not reaching people who don't know Jesus um, and they have no clue how to make disciples themselves. And so that those were the three problems that we were trying to solve uh, with their model that we we're starting with. So we moved into phase two with ideation and we have all kinds of just crazy exercises that we have people try to really tease out um, what a very simple model could look like that we could develop a prototype um, to do those things for them. Like one of them is we call, um, it's a mashup exercise called the love child. And we, we, we help them uh, think through all these different disciple making models from the last 2000 years. And we have them pick their, uh, each person picks their favorite two. And it's like, okay, if these two people were to come, these two models were to come together and they were to have a child, what would that child look like? And so for one of them, the, uh, the example was um, catechism and Awanas. And it was like, if catechism and Awanas were to come together, what kind of disciple making model would they produce? And so we just use that as a way of helping them think outside. I mean, it's so cliche to say, think outside the box, but to help them think very differently than they're thinking of before. Um, and and we, we constructed five or six different possibilities for what that model could look like uh, before they finally like, no, this is the one that feels uniquely like us. And we really spent time and attention on that, developed tools for what that could look like when they were making disciples with their model. Then we prototyped it. We moved into three months of experimentation. Hey, uh, just a sec. When, uh, like in the example you're using, the identification of like what they really wanted to do. Yeah. What was that, what they really wanted to do? Like what is the core thing in the example you're using? They wanted, they, they wanted a discipleship model. Um, so we, we talk about um, culture a lot. And so yeah. the, the way that we talk about it is culture is whatever is normal for a group of people. So yeah. we want it for, for the, the adults in their church, we want it to be more normal than not, that they would be growing in spiritual maturity and they really define what that looks like. Yeah. That they would be reaching people who don't know Jesus yet. Um, and that they would be able to make disciples from the people that they're reaching who don't know Jesus yet. And that those people in doing so would be trained to go and do the same. So the idea of, of we want to make disciples from the harvest. Mm. And so when we were experimenting, Bobby, like it's, we were not just experimenting with church people. It's Bobby, go, go grab four of your non-Christian friends and ask if they'll be, and just ask if they'll be guinea pigs. And people were far more curious and willing to experiment and be whimsical with this stuff than we ever give them credit for. Interesting. Um, and so, and I, there's a whole backstory for like how we tripped into this from 15 years ago. That's pretty interesting. Um, but like use the people, not in a, not in a, um, we're using them way, but like work with the people who you are, who you want this innovation to reach. Um, so, so we do that in the prototype and we did it for three or four months. It did not work the way that they thought it was going to work the first time around. And so we kept iterating, adapting and tweaking. 
but then it started to work um and it was i mean it's i get jacked about this like it was so exciting it looked like nothing i had seen before it was truly of them it felt like them smelled like them breathed like them it was of their dna so that we were able to move into phase four where right now and this is happening right now like so this is real time um they are now working with all of their current leaders so they're, they're working with about 80 of their leaders and are training them in this new disciple making model and then when they get to the fall of 2021 uh, so in a, you know four or five months from now they're going to release the first group of people um, to, to to start grabbing people who are interested in jesus might not be interested in the church but they're not christians yet that is awesome so that that's that's one church's example of what how they walk through that process. So in, in the case of this church, can you tell us what the uh, model that they adopted or that they're experimenting and now about to mobilize is? Yeah, so they've um they they were they were I thought really clever in that they they brought together in a very simple, lightweight, low maintenance, organized expression of, of spiritual family. Um, where they've they've probably got 20 to 25 people in, I mean, they call them life groups, but other people might call them house churches, but it's very simple. And they've got a, a regular rhythm in their groups of how they're doing. Some people call it up in and out, but loving God, loving people, serving the world, whatever. Yeah. Um, but they each each house church or life group now has at least four leaders who know how to make disciples in this particular way and what they've what they've done is they've created a 30-day window of time where the entire church is praying and fasting around this next season of disciple making and everyone is praying through lord would you show me who you want like who either should be investing in me or who i need to go and disciple so they're introducing a trigger into the wow. culture that they're going to do every nine to ten months they're going to introduce that trigger um, and that trigger, they're trusting the Holy Spirit will reveal to those people who those people would be. And through those spiritual families as a launch pad, they'll reach into the community that they are, they have a mission that they're, they're moving in towards. So that's how they're thinking. It's a marriage of something very organic, but also lightly organized. Yeah. Well, I love, I love it. So, um, when you're guiding people through these steps, what are the key things that create success at each stage so for uh identification in a healthy process what happens at identification you have identified the innovation that you need in a very concrete way so that you will know if it if it by the by the end of phase three if it works or not okay and so then, it's not going to be it's not going to be like love people better um but, but i don't know how to quantify or qualify that it's going to be specific um phase two uh we know that we have arrived at the end of phase two and we have what we call an mvp a minimum viable process uh which is a a, a prototype we're like all right this is how we're going to do this thing and now now we know how to experiment with it phase three we, we know that we've won phase three if it works. If it doesn't work, we're not done with phase three yet. We will not move on. Like 
we might have to go back to phase two and be like, we, we had a theory. We thought it was going to work. It didn't work. We got to go back. Got to go back to the drawing board and then we'll come back through. Once it works to mobilization, until we can simply train people um, who, who don't have advanced degrees to go and do this thing, we, we, it, we cannot leave phase four. It's not simple enough yet. And if it's not simple, it can't be scalable. Ooh, that's then, can, can, can you talk about that for a second? Or actually, go ahead and finish. I want to come back to it. Yeah, and then the, the win for phase five is that it is that this innovation is reaching its ultimate potential. And so a lot of phase five is around like, hey, what are the barriers towards multiplication for this particular innovation? And it'll be different depending on the innovation. And so it's identifying what those are and what does it look like to lower those barriers with as much control as we have. I mean, there's only so much, like I'm, I'm presenting this like it's a scientific process, but it's not. It's art, it's science, and it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. No, that's okay. That's how it works. So let's, let's spend just a minute talking about what something you just said that I have found is super important. And if I'm being really transparent, I'm going to say that most of us with seminary education, we weren't taught this well, okay? And so I'm, I'm like triple seminary degrees, so, uh, and, and that is this. You want to get where the model you have of disciple making in your church, here's my descriptor of it, Doug, it's how it's been simple, effective, and reproducible. Now, what you were saying is uh, this, you're saying the same thing from a different angle, and that is it's got to be for everyday people. Yes. Like the focus is everyday people. It's the ministry of everyday people. It's the priesthood of everyday people. It's the disciple-making activization of everyday people. That's, that's where God does the most impactful work. And I – I mean, I can get on a soapbox. I'll, I'll, I'll like get take, on a soapbox. I'll, I'll, I'll take one. Let me step give on. you a soapbox for a yeah. second. Yeah, the average American reads at a tenth grade reading level. That's the average American. And if we are de if we are designing things that require you to have at least a master's degree level of education, we're in trouble. And 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 the other thing that it implicitly says to people is that you can out-educate yourself from your sin patterns and the things that bind you. And that is not the gospel. Like the gospel is not like complex and easy to do. The gospel is simple, but hard to do. Mm. Like that's incredibly important, but we build systems that say, no, 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 you can out-educate yourself. And you can't, like you cannot do, like you need the Holy Spirit to give you freedom. You need the 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 return and the promise of the gospel in your life. That's what you need. And it doesn't mean that there isn't complexity within like the scriptures and theology and doctrine. There absolutely is. But what we want to do so often is we want to get people to like the 301 or 401 levels. Yeah, and yeah. It, it literally is in the American church what Peter is talking about, where he's like, you are not ready for solid food. You just need milk right now. Yeah. And we got to walk before we can run. And yeah. we design, we consistently design things for people who should have masters or PhDs. Yeah. Well, what happens is I, a few years ago, I came to the conclusion, we disciple people who are going to be in church leadership. We disciple them in seminaries and they're actually discipled to be scholars uh, or seminarians more than they're 
discipled to disciple everyday people. And uh, there's so much uh, unlearning and deconstruction and then relearning that we have to do. By the way, I, I just came to my mind a, a statement that I think is really on point with this. It's the guy who was asked, doesn't it bother you that there are things in the Bible that you don't understand? To which he said, not nearly as much as the things I do understand, but don't practice. Yes. And like when you look at something like what the Bible teaches about love, I don't need more knowledge about love. I just need to, to make it more of the lifestyle and the formation of who I am in loving people. And that, uh, like that's deep. <laughs> if you want to go deep, let's go deep yeah. on learning to love each other. I mean, what are there, like 92 one another's in the gospel or in the epistles? Um, how are we doing with that one anothering? Like how, like that is, that's the embodiment of the information. It's the yeah. living out. It's the word taking on flesh. That's, that's the point. The point is that we can answer questions. Yeah. So, uh, Doug, I want to take us uh, and talk about disciple making movements and discovery Bible study. Yeah. and uh, other things like that. Before I do that, though, if you were to encourage people with one thing about your book that you like think is really important, especially for church leaders, uh, why they need to read your book, <laughs> what would that one thing be? I'm going to give you more than one. Um, I, I think the book is hope-filled. Yes. I, 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 and I, and that part of that is part, some of that is like, I'm actually hopeful about the future of, of the church, but some of that is sometimes we do have to deconstruct or take apart certain things to like build things up. But I think so much of what I hear, read, see is just deconstruction and bad news. And so I really wanted people to walk away and be like, that is what I want to give my life to. Not, not what I'm writing about, but like the kingdom. Like that yeah. is, and I am like, yes, that I, I, want, I want my heart to beat faster for what Jesus is doing in his world um, because, because they read the book. I think that's, a, that's one piece of it. The other piece is, and I talk about this in the introduction, the world is changing faster than it has ever changed. Ever. Yes. I mean, I underlined that when you said, it used to take 30 years, now it takes 18 months. Yes. So, and that is new in the last 15 years, and it has everything to do with this, this thing in our hand, the democratization of the internet in everyone's hand. Um, the, wor the world and culture used to reinvent itself roughly every 20 to 30 years, speed of a generation. It now happens every 18 months. So the only thing we can really count on is that, that change is going to come. Yeah. And so the, the point that I wanted to make in the book is if that's true, or at least to start with in the book, is that innovation is a incredibly important skill set that every leader needs to have in their tool belt. It's not the only tool thing in their tool belt, but we like if you are missing that, it's the equivalent wow. of a carpenter missing a hammer. Like uh, carpenters need more than a hammer, but they have to have a hammer. Yeah. Well, and that's a profound argument. In other words, you've got to get skilled in innovation because you're going to be innovating every 18 months. I mean, you could make the argument that you might have to innovate every 18 months. Yeah, so there's that. But, but also, 
innovation is a skill you can learn. I think one of the great myths is that some people got the innovation gene and some yeah. people didn't. You can learn it. Um, and so the, a lot of the stories that I weave throughout the book, Bobby, are stories not about people who thought of themselves as innovators, but catalyzed incredible social movements. Um, not because they were like, it's my job to innovate, but because like they were faced with a problem. Bill Wilson just needed to stop drinking. Like he was, he could, he was an alcoholic. And he didn't know that like when he took his learning and Bob Smith took his learning and they met together that they were going to launch a movement that would reach 130 million people and Alcoholics Anonymous. They weren't thinking of themselves as innovators. They're like, we just got to stop drinking for us, for our sake and for our wives sake. Um, and so over and over again, that's what you see. You read the Bible. We aren't necessarily talking about the greatest innovators. We're talking about people who are responsive to the Holy Spirit and saw a need in front of them. Yeah, boy, that's good. Okay, well, again, just encourage everybody to uh, to work through the book. I, I think it's real important, like you said, to develop the skills of understanding and implementing kingdom innovation. So let's talk about disciple-making movements and discovery Bible study. All right. So just to help everybody to get a sense, of the North American context, uh, discipleship.org in partnership with Exponential did a massive study uh, that was statistically validated. It came out a little over a year ago, March of 2020. And uh, the conclusion is that less than 5% of churches um, have a culture of disciple making. Uh, it's when, when Doug described it as uh, would you say it's it, it's the norm? It's the normal culture is, culture is whatever is normal for a group of people. Yeah. So less than five percent of churches have it normal that we're disciples who make disciples in this church. And um, the other thing we looked at is would there be what are called level five churches, which which would represent disciple making movements. So what's a disciple making movement? You say. A disciple-making movement is where disciple-making is viral. It's not only the normal thing that we're disciples who make disciples, but we're disciples who make disciples who make disciples uh, of the harvest, like it's lost people uh, rapidly being reached, so that uh, in a disciple-making movement, it's 100 churches, four generations in multiple streams, in a very short period of time. So like that's significant. There's 1,400 of them around or, or maybe more. Part of the thing is how you measure disciple-making movements, but there's 1,400 of them around the world and we can't find, our study didn't identify any. I've talked to the leaders of disciple-making movements who live here in North America, like Harry Brown with New Generations, uh, James Forloins with Final Command, and uh, uh, Jerry Trousdale, there's signs of disciple-making movements, but we can't find any here in North America. And I know, Doug, you've thought about this. You may know some incipient movements. Uh, in fact, maybe tell us about these incipient movements, and then let's talk about the process that you have. If uh, just a hypothetical, what we would do to really see uh, if at the end, we, what we want 
is this kind of movement of life change, how would we go through the process? Anyway, tell us first what you see, and then at a macro level, what that might look like if we had a group of people working on it. So I, I think, um, I don't think there are enough people working on this problem in North America. Well, you can sign me up. I want yes. to sign you up. Let's <laughs> um, this. I think there is an increasing understanding that we are we have a discipleship crisis on our hands. I think people understood that pre-March 2020. Yeah. But I think the events of the last year, so we'll say COVID, civil unrest, and just a brutal political season, whatever your politics might be, is brutal for everyone, yeah. um, revealed that Christians do not look very Christ-like. And we, um, we, we, at least that's true in the United States. And that is not even talking about whether or not those same Christians are even making disciples. Just like what's the, what's the like essence of their character? And when we think about the fruit of the spirit, what they're demonstrating on, I don't know, Facebook. Um, so I, I think that's, we recognize there's a crisis on our hands. I think there's been a lot of work to be commended. Um, and you can see like where, where this is married, like around church planting and multiplying there. Yeah. Reproduction at that level. I do, th I mean like in, in you know, discipleship.org is the fruit of this, this insight is that like, look, the way that we plant more churches is we've got to have a farm system that happens through discipleship. So we're reproducing disciples who are reproducing leaders who are reproducing churches. But I think there's been a lot of attention paid to the church planning side, and there's only now we're starting to shift our lonely eyes to discipleship and reproducing disciples. I think it's really important to, just to say is that there, there are pockets, I think, of what you're incipient. That's the word you're using? Yeah. Of, of, it, of these, like, incipient um, movements that are starting to, like, the flywheels starting to turn in North America. But it takes some time to figure it out. Like if you think of it, there are, there are a number of places right now that I think are in that third phase around experimentation. And they're getting to the point where they're like, okay, it is starting to work. Um, and then they can start thinking about scaling from there. But I, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the call. I think one of the things that, that, I've observed that pastors do is they'll hear about these things that happen in India or Nepal um, or in Central or South America around disciple making movements and rapid reproduction because the numbers sound bonkers. Yes. Like, um, they, they just sound bonkers. But I, I can just say, like, having worked with these organizations, that they're actually real and verifiable. We have uh, Shadonke Johnson. <laughs> oh, uh, did you? Is a regular with discipleship.org. You know, from Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. and uh, the numbers are bonkers. It's like what? Like before it started, nine percent of the country claimed to follow Jesus, and now it's up to forty-eight percent. It's it's in it's incredible. I mean, yeah. like, and so inevitably, like you're having this conversation with a North American pastor, and nine and a half times out of ten, the thing that I'm almost like waiting for it now, where they'll say like. Yeah, but that won't work here. Yeah. Um, and I think the the thing that we we have to like there's some assumptions in that, that that those pastors are making. And I've said the same thing. So like I'm not 
putting myself in a different group. I think the thing that we have to like put our finger on is it's, it's missing a word in that statement. Um, and it's the word yet mm. that hasn't worked here yet. Mm. Um, and if we're expecting something to work the first time, we don't understand how this worked. Like that didn't work for Shadanki the first time he did it. Right. It's that he kept at it. Um, he got he got a conviction in his bones from the Holy Spirit to keep at it. And faithfulness looked like obedience and just keeping at it. And I think there are a lot of leaders out there who probably have been told what they should do about this and are just being disobedient. Mm. They act they, like they tried it once, they tried it twice, it didn't work the way they wanted it to, and they went and found the next fad. Oh wow. Um, and it's like you gotta we, we, we are responsible for cracking the code. At the end of the day, it is the partnership with the Holy Spirit. Um, but let's partner with the Holy Spirit and be yeah. obedient and keep yeah. at it. It hasn't yeah. happened here yet. Yeah. Um, so we need a lot more people who are willing to be faithful to giving themselves to this task. Yeah. No, and uh, uh, that's one of the things we're trying to facilitate at discipleship.org is that conversation. Yeah around disciple making movements um one of the things i'm aware of is uh, our time and i do want to do a deep dive with you on discovery bible study so if that's okay yep. we can talk about disciple making movements but let's let's use your model if we can on discovery bible study now doug you and i haven't talked about this so we we may not agree so let me tell you my observation and yeah. then you, you, your scope uh, is pretty broad. So I'm looking forward to, you know, maybe I I'm, I'm, don't have this right. So Discovery Bible Study is used in most of the disciple-making movements around the world. It uh, tends to be eight to ten questions that are applied to Scripture. Uh, and they, one of my friends said, at the end of the day, uh, it's all about how are you doing with following? Jesus, and how are you doing at fishing, bringing people to Jesus, was his summary of Discovery Bible Study. Um, we won't take time to go through the, the eight to 10 questions that are typically used, but here's my observation, and then we can dive into them. My observation is that churches are using it in North America, they're, they're dabbling with it. I know of one church that has like 500 groups uh, using it, but when I really press into it as a uh, reaching lost people model, I'm not seeing it effectively used that way in North America. Are there some incipient, are there signs? Are there some signs? Yes. And so let's use that as an example. Now, first, will you speak into your observations about Discovery Bible Study? I, mean, I, I think they're, I really like Discovery Bible Study. Um, I mean, on a personal level, my when my kids turn 10, we spend a year uh, every day at 6 a.m. when they turn 10 uh, in the Bible. And so we'll, I at first attempted to go through the whole Bible with my daughter when she turned 10. It, uh, it did, we did not get through it. We probably got through two thirds of it. I'm now on my middle son, um, a year going through the Bible. He reads in, processes at an even slower rate. And so we are, we are not going to get through the whole thing, but we're going to get through a good chunk of it. 
and we've used discovery bible study every morning um wow when we do it and so like it is the, the thing that I, again going back to the thing we talked about like if it's the only way something scales is if it's simple i'm doing this with a 10 year old and there is a demonstrable difference in what they were processing understanding and applying doing this than with something else that i had originally brought in that i had to scrap about five weeks in with my mm. daughter mm. and so i think there's there's a like it works for adults it works for kids it is it's something that is just powerful at that at that level but i think the thing that, that i think is just a little off like needs a little click change is we use my, my observation in the american church is that we're oftentimes using discovery bible studies to like th this is the idea if if i can get a group of people to do a discovery bible study it'll change them from the inside out and the change that happens from the inside out uh, will produce in missional behaviors um, and that's a, sometimes that's spoken, sometimes that's not spoken, but that sort of seems to be the idea. Um, and I do think you do see some evidence that those missional behaviors do uptick um, when, when people are engaging with the word like that and applying it like that. But the, the reason that it's working, and this, is, this goes back to, uh, going back to the model like around identification, is like, why are we doing this thing? The reason that it's working at a movement level in all these other places is that they are starting the Discovery Bible study by and large with a group of people who are open to Jesus. Um, they may not be open to the church, but they are open to an experience with Jesus. Yeah. And so it's Bobby going and grabbing, maybe there's one other Christian who's really interested in it, but it's like three or four other people who aren't Christians, but who for whatever reason, only through the work of the Holy Spirit, are open yeah um and what ends up happening is a lot of those people become christians yes they then go and do the exact same thing but they're grabbing their non-christian friends and they're doing it and like it, it sets up this chain reaction and it it's like you know lydia's house in act 16 where like the reason that we see this thing catalyzing in europe is because it started with people who weren't christians Yes. Our bias in America is to start with people who are Christians. And that's a big, that's a, that's a universe of difference in yeah. how a discovery Bible study is used. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today.
give me some of your observations about Discovery Bible Study. Are you seeing places where it actually is being used effectively? And uh, I, yeah, I think there is. I think there's a lot of evidence that we're seeing an incipient movement. That's so funny. Not like laugh out loud funny. Like I, I'm, I really like the word. You like that um, word? That's a problem. It's too much uh, theological education on my part. Yeah. You, you know, they used to. Uh, uh, one of the things you learn in seminary is the problem of Gnosticism. And uh, is there incipient Gnosticism going on in John, for example? <laughs> like, is that early? Is that early signs of Gnosticism? That's where I got the expression incipient. Anyway, keep going. That was a tangent um, for a Bible nerd. Yeah, and I'm like, and then he readdresses it in some of his latter letters. Um, yeah. Back on track. Uh, I, I think in Kansas City, there's some stuff that's happening. I think um, Brian Phipps has been working there, doing some really strong stuff for more than 10 years. With uh, uh, Rob Wagner? With Rob Wagner. And there's a really interesting marriage that's happening between micro churches and disciple-making movements. Yeah. Where the, where the the discipleship thing is becoming the engine of the microchurch. And that's where you're starting to see disciples are multiplying yeah. and microchurches are multiplying because they now have this incredibly powerful engine. And what Brian has done is he's tracking it all. Um, and they are mapping out what that generational discipleship looks like. And it is, it is very close to a tipping point, I think. Oh, that's good. In a couple of weeks, we're actually doing a, um, a book review with uh, Rob Wagner. So we'll be talking about it with him at that Great. time. So I, I think there is a lot of reason to be very hopeful about what we're seeing there. And I know like, just cause I'm really good friends with Rob and with Brian, like they're, they're starting to train some people in, in what that looks like. But the, the, the key tactic, if you will, or one of the key tactics for what they're doing is discovery Bible studies. That's good. Hey, uh, just if you're, <clears throat> watching or listening to this and the whole concept of discovery bible study is new for you <clears throat> i'm going to just read to you the questions these are eight questions there's some different variations on them but uh, here's one version of it first question is and again the idea is that either you're well in most of these you're going to read the bible okay so you start off you have a group you're going to meet for an hour hour and a half <clears throat> And you'll often have these questions on a card. Uh, sometimes you don't have them on a card. People just get used to them. So the first question is, what happened this last week for which you are thankful? Then the next question would be, what challenges do you see in your life, in your family, in your world? Okay. And accountability. Uh, how did you obey, share, and meet the need from last week's meeting? What? Well, needs came up. and. How did you do at obeying scripture, sharing your faith, or meeting a need? Number four, we're going to read the passage. And then we're going to reread the passage. And then here's four questions. What do we learn about God? And by the way, a passage is not just one verse section. What did we learn about God? What did we learn about people? What was the Holy Spirit revealing to you in this passage, and how can you obey it in your life this week? Then, uh, who do you know who needs to hear this? This is the fishing question. Like, who, do you, who are you going to share this with? 
and of course with when you when you have non uh, believers who are in it, they're going through this, they're going to have networks of non-believers they're going to be sharing it with. <clears throat> um, and then lastly, how can we help with the challenge you're facing? So it's the group helping each other out. So those are eight questions that are a version of Discovery Bible Study. Can I give a, can I give a story about this real quick? Please. So, because I, I, I imagine if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, well, how does that work with people who aren't Christians? Um, so I don't remember, this is maybe 2006 or seven. Like this is the first time I kind of tripped into this. Um, I had, I had, you know, I'd read master plan of evangelism. I had some stuff that I wanted to try out and my wife is in a, uh, a very secular industry. And vocationally. And so like she, there were 600 employees where she worked. There were 11 Christians of which she was one of them. Mm. Uh, but my wife, if you're thinking about like the sort of like apest um, stuff is she's an evangelist. And so she's, she's just like wide open about her faith. And so there are constantly people coming to her asking like spiritual questions, asking if she would pray with them, asking, 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 wanting to process, um, and none of them are Christians. And it got to such a, a point with six of them where it was so, like, they should have had like this giant neon sign over their head that said like, open to the gospel. <laughs> and so we, we had, um, we had, there was a book that had come out that was called A Year of Living Biblically. And it was by an Orthodox ethnic Jew, non-practicing and kept all 613 Levitical commands for one year, wrote a book, New York Times bestseller. And so we were like, what if we took like the idea of that and applied it with disciple making with this group of people over here? And so we were like, hey, what if like you, you seem to be very curious about Jesus. What if we, we went on this one year journey together and you basically kind of like tried on Jesus's skin. You do what Jesus did in the same way because they, <clears throat> they'd either heard of or read the book. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to become a Christian. You don't even have to believe that God is real. Um, and so we would be like, hypothetically, if God exists and God wanted to speak to you from the scriptures, like we were setting up all of these couching comments to eventually they were like, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and all of them became Christians. Wow. And then those people started making disciples of their own. So we got like in, in 2006, we got to seven generations of disciple making from that one group. And we, wow. weren't, we weren't trying. Like we were just like, well, let's experiment. Now that could that thing could have flamed out. Um, it could have burned to the ground, but it was like, well, let's just experiment with it. Let's have a little bit of like, maybe this works, maybe it wasn't. And I wasn't doing it because I was a pastor. I was doing it, doing it because I was a Christian. Like I believed in discipleship. My wife's an evangelist. Those two things came together. And it like went off because of those relational networks of non-Christians. And yeah. that's what you see with Discovery Bible Studies. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So um, I want to get down to some specifics with it. But tell me about doing it with your kids. You, you're a big advocate of doing it with your kids. I, I happen to believe that discipling our children is like one of the, like, we got to get back to disciple making as core focus. And the most yeah. important disciple making we got to get back to is with our kids in the home, mom and dad chief disciple makers your job description above all job descriptions 
chief disciple makers of your kids? Absolutely. I mean, like, who else is who else is going to do it? I mean, like, a church can't do it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you want state-sanctioned education doing it. And that currently has the most influence, other than maybe their screens, if you give them a screen. Yes. Um, and so if they, you, uh, you, are, you are meant and called to be, created to be the primary disciplers of your kids. There yes. is no one else. Jesus doesn't have a plan B for that. Um, and so I think that, that does feel, it can feel daunting, but I do think there are some good resources out there um, that, that are for people. But I think the biggest thing that I noticed in doing this with my kids um, is the way in which like our relationship grew over time. Um, the level of conversation that we could have or were having shifted um in a in a pretty dramatic way but i i think thoroughly just by using the discovery bible study the thing that i was I, it was just like well what are we reading this morning that was the primary question that i was having to ask mm -hmm. uh, i wasn't like well i've got to go curriculum hunting again um it was actually the the rhythm of the same thing every day that was really? incredibly helpful because uh, they knew like it they knew what to expect they knew what mindset to come with and they knew that we were going to be praying together and that they were going to have to, and have to, like, I was hoping they would choose to obey what it is that they were hearing from the scriptures. And they knew I was going to ask the next day. No, that's good. We just have a few minutes left. So let's talk about this, Doug. If you were to take Discovery Bible Study and you were, you were to take it through the process of the five phases that you do, and I'm, I'm just going to ask you to do this really fast with it. Um, and we would say, let, let's, let's take Discovery Bible Study, like what uh, Brian and Rob Ragnar are doing in Kansas City. And, and let's, maybe if we have to tweak it or whatever, but we're going to pray. And in my hypothetical story here, we're going to go through this process and we're going to end up with something that's going to be viral in North America to uh, help power disciple making movements. Walk me through what we would do with this method that has some success, but it's not, it's not having the success it does in other countries. I, I think we find ourselves right in that third phase around experimentation, um, okay. where you're seeing, you are seeing multiplication, but we are not seeing it at the rate that we're seeing it in other countries. And so, I think the real work there, the discernment that needs to be done there, both spiritually and intellectually, is yeah. why. Like why? Like what is what is what is the reason um, that that's not happening? And there could be a whole host of reasons. So it could be when people say yes to it, they're never thinking that they have to do it. Like so, uh. maybe maybe when the the yes has to also be a yes to multiplication from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, it could be so it's not just me and my friends going to do this cool Bible study. It's like uh, we're saying yes yeah. to lots lost people and that thing we don't want to do, like splitting us up. Oh, no. I mean, uh, branching. Yeah. We're going to have to do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, keep going. It's, I, I, so that's like that. What that does is it's saying we're going to lower the we're going to raise the bar, which means we're going to get fewer people to say yes. 
but the people who say yes are going to be far more effective and have a far greater chance of it being viral so that could be something that like that's a hard question we want to ask and dig into um again thinking through experiment questions that we're thinking about is why isn't it working um it could be that one of the reasons that it's not working um is that the group sizes are too big that could be a reason and so it's like well let's try one that's much smaller i, I don't know this I'm, I'm just talking out loud hypotheticals here um it could be that the um the leadership is too directive and it needs to be more facilitative based Mm. That could be a reason, or it might be the inverse of that. It might be that in this context, it needs to be more directive and less facilitator based. Like there, there are all kind. You have to look at all the different components. What are all the things that are happening in what we're doing? Because each of them represent a, an idea and a decision, and we need to unpack that and say, well, we're assuming that this is true. Is that true? We're assuming that this is true. Is that true? We're assuming that multiplication will happen. Um, just by virtue of us giving them a multiplicative process. Well, maybe that assumption's wrong. We need to start that earlier. And so it's it's unpacking it in the experimentation section and really thinking through what are the core assumptions that we're making and why might they be wrong? Oh boy, that is so good. Um, so I think everybody watching right now would like to say, okay, we want to get in a lab with you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Doug, thank you so much. Uh, again, Kingdom Innovation, uh, uh, if you're just listening to this, you can get it on Amazon.com. Uh, I just want to encourage everybody uh, with Doug's ministry. Uh, tell us a little bit about Catapult and if somebody's interested in following up with you further. Yeah, if you go to wearecatapult.org, you can get in contact with us and schedule um, a call with us. We work with churches, nonprofits, denominations, missions agencies, uh, and help them build things that are, like if they're missing the innovation, we help them get that innovation they're going after. If they found it, we help them scale it. So that's in a nutshell what we do. That's awesome. Again, thank you one and all, and we pray that God blesses each of you and that you have a great day. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope that this episode has encouraged you and helped you in some way along your journey of becoming a disciple maker. There's two things I want to remind you of. Number one is I'm going to keep releasing episodes Mondays and Wednesdays. So if you want to stay up to date on when those come out, please click subscribe on the Disciple Makers podcast. I would absolutely love you forever if you did that. Number two, Mark your calendars for November 4th and 5th of 2021. We're going to be hosting the National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's going to be a great time. And it's going to help a lot of people come together as disciple makers from across the globe. We're going to be worshiping together in the auditorium. We're going to have breakout groups and tracks where we go into more detail and get to ask questions for some of the nation's leading disciple makers. Um, it's going to be an awesome time. So go on over to discipleship.org and purchase your tickets today. Have a good one.